so I fell down about 27 feet uh, to a on a hardwood floor uh, and ended up uh, busting about 15 ribs. I broke my sternum. I broke you know parts of my spine. Uh, I you know crushed my lungs. Uh, I think I tore my aorta, which is the major artery that supplies blood to the heart. Uh, I also uh, broke my hands, my 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 arms, and and a bunch of other things went wrong. Welcome to another episode of Pioneers of Possible, the show that connects you with the futurists, leaders, dreamers, and builders who have reshaped what's possible in the worlds of business and technology. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host and fellow technologist. And today I'm joined in the studio by Mickey Iqbal. Mickey, welcome to the show. Hi, Des. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And hey, thanks for getting up so early. I understand it's about six in the morning at your end. Uh, it's about 10 p.m. here, but uh, we're on opposite sides of the planet. I looked at your background. You're, you're an IBM fellow and master inventor, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. Uh, your official title under that is Global Lead for GDS Enterprise IT Transformation Advisory, which I'd like to get into as well. But just to lead in, could you maybe just give us a quick 30-second background on yourself and then specifically um, what it means to be an IBM fellow uh, and, and particularly to you, and then what's a master inventor? Okay, great. Uh, so first of all, I've been with IBM for about 18 years, and I've always worked in the role of a technologist. I'm very hands-on, like to play with technology, learn new stuff all the time. Uh, an IBM fellow, so uh, in over about a 100-year history of IBM, uh, IBM has done a great job of recognizing outstanding technical achievements, especially uh, those that have had sustained impact on our clients and the industry, etc. So about 60-plus years ago, uh, they introduced a program where uh, they would appoint the or recognize the, uh, the most prolific inventors and researchers and technologists uh, with the title of IBM Fellow. So uh, there have been 278 people, I believe, so far that have been named an IBM Fellow, and I'm very, very fortunate uh, and privileged to be one of them. I was uh, named an IBM Fellow back in 2015. Wow. And um, when we were talking earlier on, you highlighted something that I'd really like to to just draw out. You mentioned something about being the first in a particular category with regard to yourself. Uh, and, and your background, that you're the first uh, Pakistani-American national to become an IBM fellow. Is that correct? That is correct, and that's something that you know um, I'm very proud of. Yeah, and congratulations. It's huge. Now, the other piece of your title I'm very envious because it must look awesome on a business card is Master Inventor. What on earth does a Master Inventor do beyond the obvious part of the invention piece? Yeah, that's uh, that's another um, you know great thing that IBM does is which uh, it, it which is that it recognizes uh, individuals who have uh, contributed a lot of intellectual capital and come up with innovations that really matter. Uh, so to become an, a master inventor, you have to have filed uh, you know a certain number of patents, but not just the number of patents is important. What's also important is the impact and the quality of those patents, and then. On top of that, to become a master inventor, uh, you have to have participated in uh, you know, activities that lead to mentoring others, helping others become inventors as well, and kind of helping the overall technical community in a way that fosters innovation. 
So when you've done all of those things, uh, you go in front of a board and uh, they evaluate your case, your your impact, your background, and some of the stuff that you've done in terms of inventions. And uh, if you meet the criteria, then you are appointed as a master inventor. And it's something that, uh, you know, is only good for three years. So after three years, you have to go back and prove yourself again. Oh, wow. It's kind of like a driver's license for uh, high IQs. That's pretty cool. I, I remember reading, uh, you, you mentioned the figure like 200, I think it was like nearly 280. Uh, I was reading that um, there's something like, I think it was over 9,100 and something collective patents generated by IBM fellows in general. So you're in, you're in good company in that sense. Um, now, I actually, I had a bit of a laugh when I was looking uh, at some of the other detail around you. You've averaged something like about a 150,000 air miles all over the world each uh, couple of years. That's that's got to take a toll on your uh, your day to day life as well. That many hours in the air. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, uh, that's been true for the last several years uh, that I've been traveling all across the globe uh, while working with clients. And to be honest with you, I mean, my my role is very client facing. I work with clients all over the world to help them. Uh, develop their future generation IT systems. And I have to be with them in the same room, uh, drawing up the plans, because for these systems to be successful, it has to be a joint design. It has to be a lot of investment from us, but also from the client, so that uh, we're both vested uh, in the long-term success of the plan. So that gets me to travel uh, pretty much all over the world. And to be honest, I also enjoy... uh, new places, new cultures, experiencing uh, new people. So it's been uh, a lot of fun for me. We're going to get into that, actually, because uh, before we uh, started recording, you gave me some great insight into a recent trip to Australia, which we'll get into in a minute. I'm very keen to, uh, just very quickly also, for folk who have tuned in and listening, um, your your role around global lead for GDS Enterprise uh, in IT transformation and advisory um, can you maybe just give us a couple of minutes of uh, insight into specifically what that actually means as a role and, and uh, you know, your, your approach to delivering that role? Absolutely. So I lead a team which is, uh, as you mentioned, the Enterprise IT Transformation Advisors team for GTS. And uh, in, that, in the capacity of a team lead, I, um, I work with clients all across the globe, uh, typically at the CIO level, CTO level, and sometimes even at the CFO level uh, or the CEO level, and um, basically helping them transform to their next generation of systems that's going to help them achieve their business goals of the future. On the team, they're all distinguished engineers or very senior architects that... uh, along with me, uh, work with major clients all over the world, and we help them uh, through their transformation agendas by developing architecture, technical solution that helps them get from where they are today uh, to where they aspire to be. You must have an interesting um, day when you get out of bed because we, you mentioned there something, a very salient point in that is that um, you know, in, in the, I guess, you know, the way I would describe is the, the rate of change or the pace of change that um, organizations of all sizes, particularly the type of organization you must be dealing with at the, the higher end of town, the larger scale. I, I had a phrase recently that I used where I described the current uh, uh, climate to be one where uh, not only were C-suite and their teams being expected to um, sprint just to keep up, but they were having to sprint in multiple races all at the same time. And, you know, looking at, at the sorts of things you work with, with cloud, you know, you've got private, public, hybrid, and, uh, and all kinds of other uh, 
combinations. You've got you know, um, containerization, so you've got refactoring from code base upwards. You've got big data analytics, uh, cognitive computing, AI, and the list goes on, right? And then there's web scale architecture redesigns. You must get to a point where sometimes you just have people sit in front of you and say, I'm exhausted, you know, just give me some direction. Where do I go? Is, is it a regular thing where people just sit and just go, you know, just point me in the right direction? How, how am I going to get to where, from where I am now, where we're just really struggling to keep up to, to, to just getting the first foot on the ground? How do you approach that? Yeah, yeah I, you know, that's a great question. And I think, you know, there's a lot of technology out there. It's going to be even more in the future. It's all going to be complex, <laughs> yeah. uh, although we try to abstract as much complexity out of it. The thing is that when I'm talking with clients and working with them, we really try to focus on uh, what's going on in their overall industry, what's going on in the ecosystem. Uh, what does the retail of tomorrow look like? You know, what does the manufacturing of tomorrow look like? And then um, what are the forces that are driving uh, their organization and their sector and their industry and what industry and business do they want to be in the next few years? So when you take into consideration all of those questions, you kind of come up with a strategic view of where the organization uh, is heading towards the next few years. And then what is the type of infrastructure that they're going to require that's going to be flexible, it's going to be agile, it's going to be extensible, and it's going to be secure and robust uh, that's going to help them meet those desired business goals. So I focus on those things and then uh, really try to recommend a set of open uh, you know, technologies and not just open source technologies, but technologies that will uh, easily communicate, collaborate with other technologies as well, and that right. will fulfill their needs not just today, but will be flexible and scalable enough to meet these needs in the future. Uh, and then, you know, the, the actual technical tools we might use uh, is a very much later part of the discussion. Right. Uh, what really is important is that you have the right architecture and the right design in place that uh, is in synergy with those business goals that we discussed earlier. You had a really great one-liner that I'm going to just repeat. I made a note of it, and that was that uh, you said that one of your, your greatest challenges is to come into this scenario of conversation at C-suite or board level. And uh, instead of uh, coming and inundating them with more questions, you, you, you essentially come to them with solutions. And I really like that line. And I'm going to circle back to that. But before we get too deep into the specifics of the role, um, there's a number of things that I would like to just refocus on you personally. So one of the things I'd really like to do is just quickly recap the last couple of years you've had. You, you've had a very distinguished career, both personally and professionally. You, you've, you've had some astounding things in your life. But you mentioned uh, that you've been through a recent challenge that I'd love to get you to just share if you're comfortable with it uh, in the last year or so that you've had to kind of deal with personally and then build yourself back up and to get to the point where, you know, you, you're, you're back at work and on the job and, and performing. Because I think it's it's quite an inspirational story to hear the challenge you've been through and the types of things that you, you mentioned. I mean, you talked about something like 15 ribs and damaged your spine and spleen and a busted arm and busted hand and... I mean, I, you, I, you have to give me that detail because I think there's a lot of people that are going to listen and just sit there and go, I cannot believe this guy picked himself up <clears throat> excuse me, and turned up to work again. Um, can you maybe just share some insight in a couple of minutes on kind of what that was and, and how you got yourself back to sort of, you know, turning up to work and, and, and getting on with it? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, does what you know, life sometimes catches up with you very, very suddenly and just uh, – 
Uh, what happened was back in June, um, I'd been you know, traveling all over the world. I've just spent you know the first three weeks of June uh, working in, in London on a very major client transformation we had there. I flew back to the U.S., quickly stopped in Canada, came home, and then over the weekend, uh, I was in my attic working on uh, my air conditioner, which as an engineer, I love to do. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just, uh, I stepped on, you know, the wrong part of the attic and oh, I, 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 I fell through it. And before I exited the attic, I think my, my jaw just uh, hit one of the beams there and it cracked in three places. So I fainted. And then um, it was like our living room. So I fell down about 27 feet uh to a on a hardwood floor uh, and ended up uh, busting about 15 ribs. I broke my sternum. I broke you know parts of my spine. Uh, I you know crushed my lungs. Uh, I think I tore my aorta, which is the major artery that supplies blood to the heart. Uh, I also uh, broke my hands, my 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 arms, and and a bunch of other things went wrong as well. I mean, it took them about. Uh, 10 hours or eight hours just to put my hand back together. Uh, all in all, I was in a coma, in and out of coma for about two weeks in the ICU. And then overall, I spent, uh, you know, about three weeks plus in the hospital, including some rehab time. Uh, and then I was out of work for about six months, during which time, uh, you know, I was recovering uh, and doing rehab. And uh, there was about a four, four and a half month period that I actually had to sit up and I couldn't lie down because of all the broken ribs. And um, I just, you know, had to sit up instead of, and couldn't sleep. So I had to sleep that way for 10 minutes at a time. And then <laughs> I would just kind of lean back and my back wow. would hit the, 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 the back of the sofa and I just uh, uh, wake up uh, yelling in agony. So that was kind of what happened. So if you're interested, then I can tell you what happened next. That's astounding. I mean, the 150,000 hours of flight time every two years uh, would have got you set up well sitting in a chair for a while then, I guess. But um, So the thing that, that really struck me with that was for the average person that would have kind of been an end game. It's like, you know, I'm done. I'm broken. I'm, I'm going to, you know, woe is me. But, you know, you mentioned you're, you're a golfer. You love scuba diving. You're a bit of a foodie. Um, I remember seeing a picture of you holding what must be a decent-looking cappuccino, which I'm going to claim to be Australian. Um, how does someone come back from that? You know, where, how, how do you go about just digging deep and getting to the point where, you know, um, I'm, I'm not going to let this get on top of me. I'm going to get back in my game. Uh, you know, and, the, and the, in your mind, you say to yourself, I'm an IBM fellow. I'm a master inventor. I'm the global lead for a big, I'm going to beat this. How does someone dig deep and just get back on the game with that? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. And, you know, for some people, this may sound a little bit cheesy too, but, you know, it's what worked for me. And, um, I, you know, I realized that there's probably, I couldn't go any much lower. Uh, I was already at the bottom with everything, my physical condition. And I thought about all the different uh, clients and companies that I'd worked with, which in order for them to transform, they literally had to sometimes break themselves and then rebuild themselves. And I had some guidelines and pointers for them. And I said, well, maybe I can apply some of the things that I've done in business and live through them and to apply them to myself as I well. I like that. I like so, that. I, yeah, so I just, you know, one of the things I had to do was I had to start walking uh, because of all the broken ribs. There was water in my lungs and my collapsed lungs. So they said, you have to walk in order to avoid getting pneumonia and then die that way. So uh, with everything, I, I was, I think I had broken 40 plus bones at that time. And so I started 
walking three weeks after my accident and I could only walk 10 feet and then I walked 15 feet and then I got to walking five miles a day within a month Uh, and I kept on walking that's the only thing I could do and I just mentally uh, you know just willed myself to get better Um, my hand was broken so bad that the first day I went for uh, occupational therapy uh, my occupational therapist rolled a piece of paper and he said, you know, show me how far can you throw this? Um, and I could only throw it about an inch. Uh, oh, wow. That's how, how badly my hand was injured. And then I kept on working on it. And and four months later, I was uh, throwing three pointers uh, from a basketball in a basketball court uh, and making it. So three pointers, you know, you, you're outside the ring and you're you're throwing from a little bit far away. And you're able to make a basket. So, you know, I just just never gave up. I just kept on working every single day with physical therapist, occupational therapist, just willed myself to get better to a point where um, last June, which is about a year later, um, I took a trip. Now within Australia and New Zealand, I was in five different cities in two and a half weeks. I did five CIO roundtables um, in uh, Sydney, Gold Coast, uh, Melbourne, then Auckland and Wellington, New Zealand, uh, and I spoke uh, as a keynote speaker at a conference uh, organized by ADAPT in the Gold Coast, as well as the next day I led a panel discussion on innovation there. So um, while I still struggle and I'm not 100% okay and I you know, manage day-to-day on different medicines and I still have to go back all the time to doctors and x-rays uh, and CT scans to, to make sure things are going okay, uh, I've decided not to let this get to me, and I've gotten up and I've gotten back in the saddle. That's fantastic. It, it, it really is an inspiration, and I, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think, uh, you know, I, I've personally known people being through adversity. I, I've been very lucky that I've not myself had anything anywhere near remotely like that. I feel sorry for myself when I've got a sore knee from going for a run. Um, so I think that a lot of people are going to draw a lot of value from that insight. You, you mentioned uh, there were a number of mentors you'd had through life, but there was one in particular that you called out, and I'd love to just get some insight into that. You mentioned uh, that one of the most influential uh, mentors you've had in life is uh, uh, Carl Meadows, uh, a computer scientist and a lawyer and a business administrator that you've worked with at, I think it was University of Illinois, Chicago. And there was a one line that I remember reading that uh, he'd encourage you to wear many hats and, and work on all the latest and greatest uh, advancements in areas of technologies. Um, you know, tell us a little about what that actually means to have a mentor at that level and how you draw on that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I met Carl about 25 years ago when I was uh, working at the University of Illinois. And actually, he was not just my mentor, but he was also my boss at that time. And uh, great guy. I still I met him about a year and a half ago again in Chicago. Uh, he taught me one thing very well, which was he wanted me to not just focus in one specific area. He wanted me to kind of stretch myself and try to learn about different things and different technologies and then apply an overall approach to solving problems um, by having expertise in multiple domains. He himself had uh, expertise in multiple domains. I mean, he was a lawyer, he was a computer scientist, he was a business administrator. So when I joined IBM 18 years ago, I was... uh, I was a software distribution architect. It was in a software distribution architecture role and a technical team lead at the the Sears Roebuck uh, client that we had. And uh, while my job was very much to focus on the architecture and solutioning for software distribution for all the Sears stores and all of their servers and, and workstations, 
you know, just following the advice that I had, I started concentrating on other periphery areas as well of uh, technology. And then very soon I learned, I you know, realized that my management uh, caught on to that and said, look, this guy is interested in so much more. And I got more and more opportunity to do other things. Uh, so I thought it was very good advice. I give it to all the people I mentor as well, which is like, don't pigeonhole yourself in one area, learn more and try to evolve with time and technology. Yeah, I think it's a great takeaway for folk to share in this because uh, when we look at the last sort of two to three year, uh, decades, you know, we've had um, you know, sort of the, the 1980s shift from sort of mainframe to mid-range, mid-range to sort of, I guess, you know, common off-the-shelf systems, they call them, but I, I call them glorified PC servers. And then we went through sort of the, the, the 90s and the internet became a thing and then the Y2K boom uh, uh, incident and then the um, dot-com boom and then, you know, we've had sort of Web 2.0 and, and it goes on. We've got cloud and big data. I, I think you're absolutely, you know, that taking that advice and adapting it the way you have and applying it is, is, is probably one of the most valuable things that, that young folk who might be listening can take away and say, you know, if you do get pigeonholed, you are going to shorten the, the opportunities that you've got in, in a career path. Uh, and also, I think it, you know, it's probably fair to say that it keeps life interesting as well. You, um, When we were chatting earlier, you also, uh, there was something that sparked my interest because it's right up my alley. Uh, you, you, we were talking about where your best ideas come from, and you mentioned that you're also a night owl. I mean, I, I personally survive about three and a half to four hours of sleep a night, uh, but I've got some serious issues people tell me. Um, tell me what it means to be an idol and, uh, and kind of, you know, where your, where your clarity of thought comes about with that and how you apply that to day to day. Yeah. Look, I, I learned to be a night owl a long time ago when I was, uh, you know, going to graduate school and then I was also working and I found out that, you know, uh, when I came back from work in the evening, my mind was just not fresh enough to tackle some of the, uh, the challenging problems. So I would take like a 40 minute nap and then when I would get up, my mind would so fresh it was just like it was first thing in the morning so i just kind of followed that pattern you know, throughout my life and uh, i just uh, tend to work much better with creative things at night just because i have very little distractions and i can focus on things and you know keep my attention span going for a while without getting interrupted so i personally do some of my best work i've filed about 30 patents so far and i would say most of them i worked at uh, at night wow if you were going to, uh, I mean, I love the way that you uh, very casually dropped it. Thirty patents. Let's just highlight that three zero. That's <laughs> that's quite astounding in, in, in anyone's career. If you were going to, if you were going to highlight two of them in particular, um, what do you think had the greatest influence in one sense? And then on the other side of the coin, if you're going to highlight a second one, what do you think was the most rewarding patent? I think the uh, the most rewarding patent I had was. Uh, the one that uh, we did on uh, the design of a hybrid cloud with a very sophisticated uh, disaster recovery system. So uh, the the origination of this was I was working in Germany for about a year on a client uh, engagement, uh, which you know, we ended up winning with a competitive bid with five other uh, competitors bidding on the same uh, proposal. But you had to come up with a very sophisticated design, it was in many ways first of a kind, of a hybrid cloud environment that would uh, be created for a client that was trying to move from 135 data centers from 45-plus countries to just five strategic data centers, which were cloud data centers. 
Um, and then they wanted to have a very sophisticated DR approach across all of these different data centers. So uh, as part of that engagement, I helped uh, design that approach, and then later on, uh, we patented that as well. Uh, and so that was very impactful. We won that uh, engagement. It was worth over 1.2 billion euros at the time. And then also, uh, we've been able to uh, reuse the work that I did there across many, many other clients as well. So that is one. The other one I find very, very uh, rewarding just personally is that uh, before I joined IBM, I was doing my graduate work at the uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, where I was working um, on a PhD that I never ended up completing. I did my qualifiers, I did my prelims, I passed uh, all the all the courses, uh, but I didn't defend. I joined IBM. Uh, it was a difficult time for me in the sense that I was financially you know, in, a, in, a, in a bad place and I needed to get out, so I needed to go work instead of continuing to work on a PhD. And, and the work that I did there was on, um, you know, basically search um, on the internet or amongst heterogeneous information sources. So I ended up filing, I think, two different patterns uh, based on my dissertation uh, after joining IBM for IBM. And so they're both IBM patents. One of them, uh, is my understanding, has been actually sold to, uh, to Google. Um, so it's out there on the web, and uh, you can go look at it. It's around keyword searching, and you can see all the citations or the site. Yeah, it's been cited by by Google, by Microsoft, and others as well. So that was just a personally rewarding thing for me to do to take the research that I was doing uh, personally, and then bring it to IBM, and then patent it. What are the sorts of things that you can share around a client engagement? I'd love to get some some idea around what that actually looks like. So folk who are listening, we've come to know you personally, you've had some amazing challenges, you've, you've dusted yourself off, you've done some mind-blowing things. What, what sort of approach do you generally find works best? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, people think that we're in technology business and, you know, uh, we are, but I think we are in a relationship business. So I, to me, a personal relationship is very, very important. So the first thing I want to do, I try to do is when I meet somebody, I want to establish uh, some sort of a personal uh, rapport with them. So I'll give you an example. I've, I was working um, recently uh, on a very uh, thorny problem with one of the clients. Uh, I cannot name them, but they're large financial ser- one of the largest financial services sector clients in the U.S. And um, they basically wanted to transform their antiquated systems and technology to a more modernized state be able to stay competitive. And they had some regulation um, from the U.S. government as well that was uh, forcing them to make these moves. And yet, um, it was very, very hard for them to get to this new state just because they had such complicated old legacy environment that would be very, very hard to transform. So I partnered up with their uh, chief engineer, and you know, we built up a relationship. And then we basically whiteboarded the whole transformation plan together. And once he and I agreed on what that transformation plan looked like on a, on a whiteboard, uh, we basically invited all the application teams uh, to come and join us one by one. So we literally had a train of application teams, uh, you know, uh, coming in uh, one by one and that we would take them through the entire transformation roadmap. And we had a large conference room with many whiteboards that were all filled up. Um, and, you know, we went through this joint design process, both him and I, and then we were uh, very successful in ensuring that we could address the needs of the, 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 the line of businesses and the application owners. And then we came up with a transformation plan that we signed 
uh, or our executives uh, at the business level sign. Um, and then, you know, jointly about a year later, uh, we co-presented that at, at one of the conferences. So that's what a typical engagement for me looks like. It's right. working very, very closely uh, with the client directly, getting them vested in the solution. So it's not my solution. It's our solution. It's it's something that, you know, we conceive together. And it's something that they're 100 percent you know behind and, and wanting to implement because, these IT transformations are very, very hard, and uh, you really have to have the right uh, people and commitment behind uh, from an executive level to, to, to be able to be successful here. I guess the key there, if I was going to paraphrase that, is that you, know, uh, you, you build a relationship with them on a, on a personal level uh, and establish a, a rapport and trust to build that rapport into a situation where they have a vested interest in the thing such that they don't just fund it and sponsor it, but they champion it side by side. So that it's, you know, if I, if I was going to even go further, I might even describe that as a partnership then as opposed to just a service provider relationship. Would that be a fair way to describe it? Absolutely. I mean, you paraphrased it perfectly. Uh, I think just becoming a trusted advisor to the client is very, very important. I mean, before you start discussing any tools and technology, you have to establish that level of trust because it's not a a client, uh, you know, provider relationship. It's a partnership. And that's what you need to drive for. And I think that's where some of the longevity that I've seen from the work you've done, you know, just doing some background on it, You've clearly got long-running relationships with these people. I imagine you've built personal relationships uh, uh, beyond those as well as they've moved roles or within the company. Um, and, I, and I think that's uh, you know something that's been a dying art for many years. So it's 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 good to see that it's coming back or it's been around with you for that time because we've seen too many people just come and go like a second-hand car salesman in technology. And, and, and in many ways, IT and technology have gotten a bad name as a result of that. But it, it sounds like you've well and truly nailed the, the correct approach. Yeah, there there are some clients, large clients that I've been uh, working with for you know more than a dozen years. There's one yeah. client um, that was you know I'll give you an example. It's Ameriprise Financial, which was created back in 2006 as a it was the third largest divestiture in the history of the U.S. And um, you know I helped uh, lead from an engineering perspective that separation from American Express and. Uh, creating the new Ameriprise uh, architecture as well as the, um, the the infrastructure environment, their virtualized environment. And so wow. that was a five-year contract we had with them. It was, you know, a few hundred million dollars. And it, you know, had its initial transition challenges, but then, uh, you know, it went so well that then they signed another five, six-year contract with us, uh, which was even bigger than the, the the previous few hundred million dollar contract. And I think now they're in the their third contract with us. Um, so I just, you know, I, I met with the CIO there about a year and a half ago. I was uh, on the, the U.S. CIO advisory board meeting in, in, in New York. And, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the current challenges and, you know, what the new architecture and technologies are that we're introducing in that. Uh, and this was, you know, not the CIO that I had started working with back in 2006, but somebody else. So, you know, I've had really, really long-term vested relationships with clients like that. And you know, helping them with the way they have transformed over the year their business, their technology, and and, and everything else. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of wishing I was a client of yours now. Um, so that's given us a good feel of kind of how you approach the the role. I mean, the combination of 
your IBM Fellowship, uh, the challenge of being a master inventor, uh, your role as global lead for GDS Enterprise uh, in an IT transformation advisory. Um, I'm wondering if I can indulge you in maybe some speed dating uh, quick questions as we lead up to a, a wrap-up point. Um, just to circle back on you personally, a few uh, little uh, things uh, just to, to round off our, our insights into you personally. Um, what was the last book you read uh, and, and, and what was your take on it? You know, the last book I read uh, was actually, uh, actually I'm still reading, is uh, by a, a very good uh, friend of mine, uh, Mario Moreira, and it's an agile uh, computing. And, you know, he, rock, he talks about, uh, you know, how to implement uh, agile computing in, uh, in the industry today. So a uh, very good book. Uh, it's, uh, he's been an agile coach for quite some time and, uh, you know, overall a really good guy. Fantastic. Yeah, it is the, it is the new black, isn't it? Agile's the new black uh, and everybody's developing Kanban walls full of uh, post-it notes. If there was one epiphany um, in your childhood that really set you down the current path you have, what would that be? You know, just one aha moment where you just realize that this is the direction you want to go and it really shaped you. I think it was, um, <laughs> I, I really did not um, get along very well with my biology teacher when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> and, and, and so I just decided that, you know, biology was not my path. Um, so I, you know, focused more on physics and mathematics and chemistry and ended up being an engineer. So I think that was a turning moment for me. Wow. If you were to, if you were to, to, in sixty seconds or less, paraphrase your general philosophy on life, um, what would that sound like? Yeah, my general philosophy of life is live and let live, and uh, be happy and spread smiles. I That's like it. it. I like it. Yeah, the shorter the better with these things, isn't it? Um, I've had uh, some folk give me a two-minute dissertation on their insight to life and saying, "Well, I don't know how you follow that one." Um, if there was a, if there was a one-liner you could share as to um, what get you jumping out of bed in this particular space? I mean, there could have been a number of areas around uh, advisory, uh, particularly in business and technology. Do you think there's a, a one-liner that you can share that um, just really describes what drives you to this particular market sector or market segment around uh, the IT transformation advisory space? Um, yeah. You know, the most inspirational one-liner I could talk about business is that really the more I try to educate myself and uh, try to understand technology, uh, the more I know that I know very little. <laughs> so yeah. there's a lot out there that you need to uh, really know. And, and I just think that I'm just scratching the surface myself. And I think there's a, there's a you know, for me, it's a maturity thing as well. I think, you know, when we're, when we're young, we think that bullets bounce off us and we can jump, jump tall buildings. But I find the older that, uh, that I get, and, and I've just turned 50, as I mentioned, so I'm, I'm getting up there as people say, well, my, my, uh, my kids tell me that I'm halfway to 100, which shocked me. Um, but uh, I think there was a point in time where I realized that um, one of the smartest things I could realize is that I don't always have to be the smartest person in the room. And uh, the more I listen to some of the smart people who are in the room, the more I'm likely to become one of the smartest people in the room. Just one thing is what, yeah, what I just really remember now, what, what Nick, Nick D'Onofrio used to say was, if nothing changes, then nothing changes. And what he meant by that was, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing, then you're going to keep on getting the same results. Yeah. And so if you want to make a change and get different results, then do something different. So I, that I stuck like that. with me for a long time. 
It's um, it's it's kind of like the definition of insanity in many ways, isn't it? That people say that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing more than three times, expect a different outcome. To wrap up, I'd love to just throw an interesting fun one at you, um, uh, and it's one of my favorite things to do, which I mentioned to you earlier on. If you were to uh, <clears throat> just take a couple of minutes and, and gaze into a crystal ball, um, and all things, uh, not just an IBM focus, and not even so much just yourself. Where do you see us going, um, just the world in general and technology and the impact of technology and the types of things you're working with, IT transformation, and the big changes around cloud and, and big data and analytics and AI and so forth? Where are we going to be in a year, a year and a half, 12 to 18 months over the horizon? What, what, is, what does it look like to you, to, in your, from, from your point of view? Because you, you're very much out there in the bleeding edge every day. Yeah. So, so, so that's a great question. And um, because I've seen this happen over time, I think I have, a, I have a, you know, clear, at least for me, uh, in my mind, what I see is going to happen the next couple of years. So I'll give you an example. When cloud computing and virtualization, for example, started, you know, um, many years ago, um, you know, people were so hesitant to get on board. And uh, it took a lot of time for them to, you know, adapt and change and then uh, embrace that technology. And uh, I see us there with AI today, with cognitive computing today. So, you know, there is a lot going on in that space. Uh, We are leaders in that area. The way we have developed our even the services business is now led by our IBM services platform with Watson. And and we see artificial intelligence and cognitive technologies really, really driving how businesses of tomorrow will work. So that's the one major thing I see happening a lot in the next year and a half or so that that firms that are today just scratching this idea at the surface are going to start embracing it wholeheartedly, just like they did with cloud, with virtualization um, many years ago. Uh, I think that's a great takeaway to leave everyone on. Um, Mickey Iqbal, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you making a, a 6 a.m. start to join me. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. Thank you, Dad, and it's been great talking to you. And I look forward to future conversations with you um, online or offline. <laughs> <laughs>